You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi, my name is Brandon, and you're about to listen to a sermon exhortation from Redemption City Church. And we are so happy that you are leaning in with us via video or audio today. Now, our one ask of anyone who's listening, no matter who's preaching today, is that you would lean into the sermon and that you would test every single thing by the Word of God. But here's the thing. Hold fast to everything that's profitable for your life. Like, don't just listen, let it tickle your ear, and then let it fall out your other ear. Don't do that. This is based off of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, I want to acknowledge that we are living in a pandemic of COVID-19, and that means that many of you may be separated from your church, or you may be in between churches. And though our sermons are primarily um, preached for our local body of Christ, we understand the unique opportunity and responsibility before God to preach the word faithfully for every single ear that wants to hear the word. So we're excited that you're here. So even if you're multiple states across, thank you for leaning in and joining us today for this opportunity. And it is my prayer and hope as the lead pastor that everything you hear from our church would be transformative, healing, redemptive, and ultimately encouraging you to spur on towards the God of the universe. Grace and peace. Well, good morning, Redemption City Church, and a very Merry Christmas. Here we are in our RCC studio that is provided by God through your faithful financial contributions, and we're so excited about this. This is where we're going to be having our worship and our announcements and our future sermons, and so it is legit. Now, we're here for a reason, so you, you know the deal. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, let's open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to be camping out today in verses 8 through 14 as our main focus today. And we're going to be honoring the Word of God as we read through the Word of God in the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if this is your first time here or you're a guest with us today for our Christmas service, we just want you to feel comfortable and to follow along with us as best as possible. Now, if you didn't know, we've been marching through new um, sermons in our Ephesians series for the past couple months now, but today we're taking a wise detour as we in intentionalize our affections on Christ in Christmas. So as much as I think that every single Sunday should be the same, which is namely faithful teaching and exhortations and preaching through the Word of God, I just want us all to acknowledge before each other today that there is incredible pressure put on us by culture for us to be happy and for everything to be so perfect during the Christmas season. But that's just not always possible, is it? And man, this stuff really, really affects our families, and it definitely affects our churches. In fact, I would sum up the Christmas season as a time filled with faulty aims and unmet 
expectations. Like we come expecting so much from our family and friends, don't we? And we especially put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We, we say things like, what am I going to receive? And, and will I like the things that I get? And should I accept all the things that are being given to me? And what gifts am I going to give? And, and should I give that? Are they going to like the gift that I gave? And will they accept it? Will there be enough? Am I enough? Did I spend too much? Did I spend too little? Did I make enough food? Is the food good enough? Did I do everything I need to do? Did I check everything off the list for this Christmas season? And you see all these faulty aims and all these unmet expectations causes us to be so distracted and they take our eyes off the main thing, which is Jesus. So in love, I just want to share this sobering reality regarding your expectations. And then I want to provide a wise biblical um, aim for our Christmas season so that we can do it, do it better. Okay, so here it is. The sobering reality regarding your expectations is that Christmas never quite seems to live up to the hype that it promises, does it? And you know this is true, right? Like how many times have you on Cyber Monday, Black Friday, you buy all these things, you try to do, you buy the perfect gifts for your children only for them to wake up and say, oh, I was really expecting to get this. And then you threaten them saying, boy, if you don't like this gift, I'll take everything back, right? Or or you think you got the right gift for your spouse only to see that they really wish you would have got something different. Or you invite everyone over, you have the time of your lives, and then it's 9 p.m., everybody leaves, you're cleaning up and you're just left just a little bit empty. Like Christmas never lives up to the hype that propaganda and the commercials say it's going to be. But here is a better, more wise, more biblical aim that you and me can have during this Christmas season. Here it is, and it starts today. What if our aim was right now in this sermon, we prepared ourselves to walk away understanding and believing that we've been given a privileged position for unexpected breakthrough as Christians. Like, wouldn't that be so legit? Okay, so, so how do we get our hearts to believe such a claim that we really are in a privileged position as Christians for unexpected breakthrough? I, I believe the beginning of getting to that form of a belief is going to take us right to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And then I'm going to explain some things, and then I'm going to pray about some things, and then we're going to jump into our main scripture for today. All right? So here we go. Let's get into the word. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 through 15. This is what the word of the Lord says. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Wow. You shall never again fear, evil. Okay, so here's the, here's the context. Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. Zephaniah was the ninth out of the twelve prophets that we learn about in the Bible. And at that time, King Josiah, during this season, was working really, really hard to bring about real change in this land. He was removing idols and false worship, and he was trying really hard to reestablish God's temple. But unfortunately, Israel had gone too far in their sins. So in the end, King Josiah's pride gets the best of him, and he leads Jerusalem, unfortunately, into a collision with Babylon, where they would ultimately be 
destroyed. And this was God's, this was God's judgment on them. But the, but the prophet Zephaniah, he had seen this coming all along. In fact, he'd been seeing this coming for years, right? And so he had been warning the people of Israel, and to, to, hey, the day of the Lord's judgment is coming. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming. But they did, they did not respond. And they ignored. And God carried out his promise and his judgment and they were destroyed. But, but just before he went about fulfilling that promise, God instructed Zephaniah to go to Jerusalem and to exhort and to preach and to tell them, and this is what he said, hey, if any of you would repent, if you would come back to the Lord, if you would seek the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, he will spare you. He will save and rescue you, and you will be his faithful Remnant. And then eventually Zephaniah, instructed by God, makes that same offer to other tribes and cultures that were in this area. And so faithful people from different tribes and different cultures also got that same offer. And a few faithful also responded with a, yes, Lord, I'm going to do whatever you say. Yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you call me to do. And they were ultimately spared. And so in chapter three of Zephaniah, God declares that he's going to now heal and purify and transform these faithful remnants, all these select few from these different tribes that said yes to the Lord, and that he was going to unify them into one family. And, and guess what? God does exactly what he says he's going to do. So he unifies them, bring them together, one family from various tribes, and he heals them in one nation. Are you kidding me? Different cultures coming together into one nation. So the book concludes with God's presence being amongst the people. Are you kidding me? And, and, and it goes on to say in Zephaniah that they came together and that they would sing songs in this new restored city with God who was dwelling among them, singing and making poems with them. Like, isn't that so legit? So the people are singing and they're shouting and they're rejoicing because of how God saved them and how he now dwells among them. And they had seen the destruction happening to so many others, but God had saved them. Okay, so Zephaniah, you get the context now? Zephaniah is telling the people, hey, remember what God's done for you. Your aunties, your cousins, your friends, they're dead, they're perished, they're gone. But because of you saying yes to the Lord and God being faithful to you, we're going to sing, we're going to shout, we're going to rejoice, and we're going to exult because four different victories had been experienced. So there's four forms of praise being expressed right now, and there's four forms of victory expressed right into those two verses in 14 and 15. Let, let's take a look at those. Here we go. Here, here's those four victories. So the, the people were singing, and they shouted, and they rejoiced, and they exalted because God had taken away the judgments against them, right? Like, remember, they had been wicked. They had been worshiping false idols, and they had been doing the wrong things. But God, he provided grace to them, and he saved them and he restored them and then he now dwelt among them. They were singing and rejoicing and shouting because God had cleared away their enemies. Folks, Babylon had been ravaging the people and he had Babylon took over all these different nations, but these people were spared. They were restored. They were put away, and they were guarded inside of this city, and so they were singing about that. You see, they were singing and shouting and rejoicing because God was ever-present amongst them now. Like, did you catch that? God was literally dwelling there, and he was writing poems with them and singing with them and dwelling in the city with them while, while others were perishing 
all around. They were rejoicing. And finally, they were singing and they were shouting and they were rejoicing and exulting because they knew that they had experienced a type of redemption that had set them free and that they had been promised that they didn't have to fear the evil anymore that was around them. Okay, so, so that, that's legit. Now, while God is saving these people from very obvious physical earthly despair and being physically destroyed, he was also using this text and he was using this moment in time as a prophetic vision of what his son Jesus, the Messiah, would do for all people that he had called before, before time, right? Ephesians chapter one, that he called us before the foundation of the world. So he was prophetically saying, hey, there's gonna be another one that comes. And his name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the Messiah. And he's going to do this for all people. You see, Jesus would eventually come and call us out of false worship and call us out from idolatry and bring us into a restorative relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus, too, he started with the Jews when he first came. And then he expanded that to include all the Gentiles and folks Praise God, we are those Gentiles. And so Jesus saves me and he saves you in totality with finality. And in Christ, we're restored now and forever. Are you kidding me? We're restored now and for all eternity. Okay, so now I want you to see how glorious this Bible is. I love it. We're going to sew this scripture back together, and we're going to see how, what this means for us and bring it into our context. You ready? Let's do that. Here, here let's sew the scripture together. Therefore, people at our Redemption City Church, those who call Christ your king, we sing because God has taken away the judgments against us. Remember, we were so dead to rights, right? We were stuck in our shame, our muck, our mire, but in Christ, we've been set free, and our judgment has been removed. We are clean. We shout praises hallelujah because God has cleared away our enemies and how many know that the worst enemy we talked about this in the Ephesians series is not the burglars it's not the robbers it's ourselves he's cleared us away and allowed us because of his son to become new men and new women as we put our old self away and we rejoice we say thank you God thank you God thank you God Jehovah because God is ever present among us now. Like the Holy Spirit is with us. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing miracle. And finally, we exalt and we lift up Christ because we are redemptively free, commanded and promised that we are not to fear evil. Christ has come, he has saved, and we are free now to do good things. He's lavished so many good gifts on us, and we're free now to be ambassadors for the kingdom. Like, like, can't you see, we were lawbreakers and rebels against God, yet in Christ, our punishment has been totally removed. And this great grace is right now available for every single adopted child of God. Folks, our judgment day has already occurred. Did you know that? Our judgment day has occurred already. And while there's still going to be this obvious, incredible moment at the end of time where we meet our Father face-to-face in what we have called historically Judgment Day, while that day is still going to happen, uh, listen, it's not going to be where we find out our ultimate fate. Are you tracking with me? This is not going to be the moment that our fate is ultimately decided, but rather in supernatural ways that are really beyond all of our comprehension to really understand, we're going to meet God and he's going to be even more exalted and he's going to be glorified beyond all reality of what we can think about as he 
pulls out the book of life and he reads the verdict on us. And he says, hey, your life was filled with sin and muck and mire, Brandon. You did this and you did that. And in that moment when we are, when our eyes are filled with trembling and we're hearing the story of our lives and then our eyes move from looking at our father's face as he's talking and our eyes then glance down from at the book from which he's reading you know what we're going to see we're going to see Christ's sacrificial blood oozing and raining all over those pages and then with Christ's inner confidence we're going to look back up from that book and start to let our eyes gaze back up at our father and we're going to realize something super important you know what that is that even though he was reading the book of our sin and our shame, he wasn't done reading it yet. He was simply in mid-stride as he was reviewing the case. And then once he's finished laying out this story of our life that was filled with sin and idolatry and choosing lesser things over him, when he's done reading this sin-filled story, he's going to tell you and he's going to tell me and every single adopted child the greatest one-liner of the greatest story of all time. You know what it is? He's going to say, hey, son, hey, daughter, because of Christ, who's paid your debt in full, you're innocent. Your debt has been paid. You're free. You are welcome here. Now dwell with me in my home forever. Like, are you tracking with me? Our judgment day, that day when he looks at the long book of our, of our shame and our sin and our muck and mire, there's going to be blood splashed all over the pages covering it all. And then right on the top of your book, there's going to be a seal and a stamp with Christ all over it saying, paid by Christ now and forever. That's why Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 15 is saying, sing, shout, rejoice, O Israel, rejoice, O redemption, and anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Like we, the legitimately adopted, repented, putting the old sins away, stepping into our new life, Christian disciples of Jesus will have nothing to fear on judgment day. Remember that. Instead, we're going to be celebrating this day. Are you with me? We as Christians are not to fear Jesus' return when he comes, folks. We are to anticipate it with joy because he's paid the price. He's paid the price. Our judgment has been cast. Christ has paid for it. We're free, and we're free to rejoice in that. And so Christmas, folks, Christmas is the time where we reflect and we remember and we celebrate Jesus entering the world that was filled with darkness and piercing it with his light to begin his fulfillment of all things. So, so, so here are some important questions that I want you to think about as we talk about Christ in Christmas. Here they are. Number one. How central has Christ been in your Christmas season? Like, like how central this reality that he's come, he's freed you from your sin, he's freed you from your shame, he's cleared your enemies, he's present with you now. How central has that reality been so far this month of December in your Christmas season? Number two, how central will Jesus be on Christmas Day for you? Like, what are you going to fill your time with? Will it be about the truth of Jesus and who he represents? And then finally, are you eagerly, eagerly, eagerly anticipating 
Christ's return. Like, are you excited about that? Are you pumped about that? Do you live life expectantly, especially during this season? I want you to write down a little number scale. Ten means I'm super, he's going to be super central, Pastor Brandon. I'm really excited. I'm really anticipating zeros like Pastor Brandon. I'm being honest. I'm not really intentionalizing Jesus at all. Put it down and answer this question. Because let me tell you, Christmas represents a time where we remember that Jesus was born to begin his mission of reconciling all things. Reconciling all things back to himself. And that, that is good news. Like, but here's the thing. If Christ was to visit your home, and if, and if Christ was to visit my home, Here's my question. Would he distinctly know that today is all about him in the same way your friends and your loved ones and your children would know that their day is all about them on their birthday? Just answer it truthfully. Because, man, man, if we're just being honest, I think we can all say that we would in part be a little bit embarrassed if Christ showed up on our doorstep on Christmas, namely his birthday. Like my children, Aiden and Aubrey, they know it's their birthday because we dedicate the entire event, the entire day to their experience. Are you with me? Like the things that we sing about, the things that we laugh about from the choices of the things that we eat, everything that we do is centered around the object or the person of our affections, namely the birthday boy or the birthday Girl, like if it's Aubrey's birthday, folks, the stories that we tell, the, the, the memories we go like, oh, I remember when you used to do this, it's centered on, on Aubrey. Like how weird would it be at Aubrey's birthday if in the back corner we had another child being celebrated and, and, and everybody was lavishing gifts on them? Like we don't do that, right? Because it's Aubrey's birthday and we were celebrating her and we're eager to do that and we're anticipating our moment to say happy birthday. And so the question is, how do we do that? on Christmas. How are you doing that on Christmas? And I think if we're being honest, we can all say that we can all grow more at keeping Christ centered in our Christmas experience. Because when Christmas comes around, we get this awesome privilege. We get this awesome opportunity to celebrate, celebrate an important drop-pin moment in history where our Savior <laughs> was born among us, folks. Do you know what that means? Not so we can focus on superficialities like Christmas parties and Christmas candy and presents and, par and decorations. It's fun. Those are good and right and true gifts that I do believe God wants us to experience. But folks, at the end of the day, they're going to return to dust in the end. Listen, Christmas is about shouting and rejoicing and exulting about who our King is in our lives. It's about singing songs that are filled with joyful praises at the promises of God and what He's done for you and what He's done for me. And praise Christ now because eternity stands. It stands in reach because of Him, because of what Christ has done. Like He came as a baby, then He grew into a man, but He was totally God and He paid the ultimate price for us. That's what Christmas is all about like pay attention we are less than two weeks away folks from christmas and each and every one of us are going to have to make an important decision on what we're going to focus on we're going to have to make that that decision is it going to be parties and presents 
Or is it going to be repentance, joyful repentance and prayer to the God of the universe? Is it going to be materialism and gluttony and everything that we're going to be eating on Christmas? Or is it going to be about confession and fasting and impregnating ourselves with the gospel all over again as we celebrate who our king is? Is it going to be about preparing to be an amazing receiver? Me, 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 what I get, what I get, what I get. Or is it going to be a time where we get in the game to be a radical giver, lavishing people with our time and our love and our affections as we are imitators of Christ? Because if Christ, folks, if Christ, Jesus, the God-man, is if he isn't in the center of your week, and if he is most definitely not in the center of your Christmas day, you're missing the whole point of why we're celebrating this holiday in the first place. Like spending seven hours all day long just doing superficial realities and opening presents and eating food and laughing and playing while spending 10 minutes doing your little fancy devotion and calling that a Christ-centered Christmas. Folks, that's not going to cut it. Listen, will your Christmas experience be Christ-infused, Christ-centered, Christ-empowered, or are we going to choose? to operate like a nominal Christian conducting religious activities for a moment while we just do everything else for the rest of our day. Oh, but Pastor Brendan, you don't understand. I've already bought all the presents. The party has been set. The families are coming over. It's too late now. This, This is really good news. I'll try it next year. Hey, listen, lean in. It's never too late to change your mind, folks. You, You tracking with me? It's never too late to change your mind. We've been learning about that in the book of Ephesians, right? Like, you get to change your mind. God has given you free will. You could change your mind. And when you do change your mind, what do we learn? God gets to work. And he goes about renewing your mind, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And then he goes about transforming your heart. And then as you change your mind and God renews your mind and then God transforms your heart, you start to do all these new activities. And one of those new activities can be a transformation of your Christmas experience, your Christmas day, how you lead and how you preach and how you teach your family what Christmas is all about and who our affections are to be pointed to. And then all of a sudden, what happens? A new mind leads to a new will and a new heart with new activities. And ultimately, folks, you get a new destiny. And that destiny is a legacy for your children who carry it, hopefully, God willing to their children about what it means to keep Christ in our Christmas experience. Therefore, therefore, it's never too late to repent and say, that's my bad, God. That's my bad. I took my eyes off of you. That's my bad, God. I repent for making this day about anything else but you. And we have to do this thing, RCC, because God has called us to great things. Like, are you with me? It's never too late to give Christ the affections that he rightly deserves on the day and on the season dedicated to his glorious name. But the sobering reality may be that you don't truly want to do that, right? Like, some of us don't really want to change our mind about Christmas. And the reality may be that you are quite comfortable with your secular focuses, during the Christmas season. You see, the reality may be at the depths and the crevices of some of our hearts that we're quite content doing our traditions 
And right now we're experiencing massive resistance even to the words that I'm speaking right now. And the sobering reality may be that you are more satisfied in your plan than making an adjustment to intentionalize Christ and your Christmas. And if that's you in any way, I just want to say humbly before you, be careful, my brother. Be careful, my sister, and watch over your soul and watch over your family's soul because I'm right there with you trying to fight as best as I can to keep Christ centered in my Christmas experience and in my family's Christmas experience when there are so many pulls and there are so many distractions that for me are also difficult. So as we move deeper in today's message, it's my hope and it's my prayer that God might use today's sermon to be encouraging and biblically sound and transformative and healing and thought-provoking and pride-eradicating and humility-enriching so that we transform and that we think differently and that we would ultimately act differently as we prepare for Christmas, which is all about Jesus. But here's the good news, folks. Our God on high is all about us. He's all about redeeming us and and renewing us and perfecting us and reconciling us so that the things that we love match the things that he loves and the things that we think about are the things that he thinks about. We serve a good God. So this sermon today in particular, lean in with me, it is not for sermon evaluators. If that's you, this sermon is not for you, but rather this sermon is for those who want to be a participator. So for all the sermon participators today, I'm glad you're here. Because I want you to know something. You have been given a privileged position for unexpected breakthrough this Christmas season. And that's what today is going to be all about. So let's read our main scripture today in the Gospel of Luke. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do this. Because our God, he's good. And he has a word for us today. Let's pray. Let's read and then let's pray. Here's the word of the Lord, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Wow. RCC, there is so much here. This text is oozing and raining with opportunity for us to see the power of God of unexpected breakthrough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women listening today. I feel so privileged to have their audience, Lord. And the greatest part of that privilege is the fact that they've come to have an encounter with you and have trusted me to usher them into that place. That's crazy. 
So now I need your help, Lord, to be a capable ambassador of such a task. Now, Lord, I, I thank you because none of us are doomed to watch our stories pass us by from the stands, but rather you've called us to play in the game right in the middle of the arena of our story. Therefore, therefore, grant us the courage to do this Christian life in this Christmas season so well, Jesus. Grant us the wisdom of where to play and to laugh and where to pray and to focus. Now I need your help, Jesus, to make this word and this sermon palpable today. I need this sermon to be palpable, Lord. These people need your sermon to be palpable, Lord. There's a lot of emotions tied up in this Christmas season, Lord. There's so much. Therefore, healing Jesus, not harm. Healing, not harm. Holy Spirit, that's, that's my aim. You are mighty. You are good. You are gracious to us. May you do that for us today. May you be big for us today. We bless your name, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name that we come expectantly. Amen. Now, you know, one of my major pastoral anthems that I've dedicated my life to is the firm exhortation that God's values and his ideas and his economy and his systems of governments are so far from our own. Are you with me? Like, honestly, that difference between us and God and the way that he thinks and the way that he acts is far more significant than I think most of us honestly realize like if you were to like fully read through the sermon on the mount and you were able to discern and see the real seriousness the other world like priorities that jesus proclaims it becomes really really clear really really fast that jesus is just different than us he thinks different his values are different like, let's just think about the Beatitudes for a moment right now, because in them, Jesus is going to say some things that are just different than the way that we think. It's just different than our economy of thinking. L let's take a look right now at those Beatitudes briefly. Look at this. This is blessed or happy or joyful. In the Greek quantity, blessed trans translates to either happy, joyful, blessed. They're all synonymous. So blessed, happy, joyful are the poor. What? Blessed, happy, joyful are those who mourn. What? Blessed, happy, joyful are the meek. Hmm. Blessed, happy, joyful are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed and happy and joyful are the merciful, blessed and happy and joyful are the persecuted, and blessed, happy, joy-filled are those who are reviled against. Okay, so when you hear these character traits that Jesus is saying, hey, these are be to be counted as blessings and joyful attributes, it becomes clear really fast that his economy and his value system and his way of thinking is just different than ours, right? Because our world and our culture and our own flesh says a different story. This is what we think. Here, here it is on the screen. We say, blessed are the rich, because that's what we all want to do. It's about becoming richer and getting more. Blessed are those who are strong. It's about getting to the top and stepping on everybody along the process. And blessed are the, blessed are the proud, or blessed are those who are wealthy, because heaven forbid you're poor. That means you're a loser. Blessed are those who judge. Blessed are those who never had anything negatively said about them, because heaven forbid someone doesn't like you. Oh my gosh, if, if you lose someone on your Facebook, you're a horrible person and blessed are those who have a thousand likes on Instagram like our value system doesn't even consider that we could be be blessed even if people don't like us 
our value system doesn't, doesn't even have a category that says, man, I could be blessed and joyful and happy even if I'm frail, weak, and filled with disease and illness. Like our value system, our economy of thinking doesn't have a category that says, I could be blessed and joyful despite the fact that I live extremely modest and I don't have much in the realm of finances. Like we don't have a category and a value system that says that maybe people don't like me not because I'm a jerk and I'm a bad guy or a bad girl, but maybe people don't like me because I'm so otherworldly different. I'm so distinctly set apart for Jesus that they just flat out revile and rebel against the light in me. Like we just don't think like that on a daily basis, do we? And then let's consider how God gets things done in the Bible, right? And what we often see is that what, what appears to us as him moving too slow in Scripture or, or we want him to move faster, right? Or, or how about this? How he chooses so often throughout Scripture to work through the weak and the wackos and the weirdos, according to us, when we think he should work through the mighty and the pretty and the powerful people. Like, can't you see God's economy, God's way of thinking, his value system is different than ours? Okay, so because of God's value and economy is, is different, we need to talk about that today because God's values and God's economy is going to show up in a real way today in the Gospel of Luke. And the one thing that I need us to be careful of today as Christ followers is that we don't force, you stay with me, that we don't force our value system and our economy of thinking onto the biblical text. We have to stop doing that because the prophets of the Bible are, are proclaiming and sharing loudly that you and me have been given a privileged position in this story of redemption. Are you with me? We are seriously in a privileged position. I don't feel privileged. I'm struggling. I don't feel pri You are privileged. That's what today is about. But if we force our value system and our economy of thinking onto this biblical text in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to miss experiencing that. And we're going to miss seeing that. And we're not going to see our privileged position. And ultimately, we're going to be robbed of the joy that I believe Christ has set before us today. And ultimately, we're going to lose out on breakthrough that I believe God has for us today. So we're going to allow Pastor Peter, the Apostle Peter, to guide us into some of what the prophets were trying to communicate about this. And we're going to work out from there back to the Gospel of Luke. Now, we're not going to be able to discuss this too deeply right now in First Peter, but we're going to look at a snapshot of this in the Word of God, and then we're going to keep marching, okay? Here we go. This is the Word of God, First Peter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's all of us. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, lean into verse 10. Concerning this salvation, this is, this is about everything we've talked about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is very, very deep. Stay stay with me. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. This is us, folks. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things in which angels long to look. Wow. Angels longing to look. Man, this passage is communicating a a lot. We can do this for about five or six sermons. But what I want you to know primarily out of all of these verses is that the prophets are saying that you and me are in a privileged position because we get to see the fulfillment of Christ coming. That's what it means right there in verse 12 when it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were serving me and you, folks. The, the people of that time, the prophets and the people, were setting things up for Christ and for us. Are you with me? That's what verse 12 is communicating. Therefore, we are in this privileged position to look back and to see the mission of God proclaimed from Genesis chapter 12-ish to about 15 of Abraham, saying, hey, Abraham, through you, you're going to have many sons, and through your lineage is going to come the the, the whole Messiah, the Savior, out of your line, all the way to Jesus coming, proclaiming his mission, arming it with the disciples, coming, dying on the cross, going down, coming out in three days, leaving us with the Holy Spirit, and then taking the gospel to all the ends of the earth. We're in a privileged position that we get to see the fulfillment of all these things. And we can have supreme confidence that the prophets were right about this. You want to know why? Because you and I are right now preaching and proclaiming Christ in the Beaverton, Hillsborough area. And the last time I checked, we are a long, long way from where that scripture took place. And when these prophetic words were spoken, right, we're thousands of miles away. So we can have confidence in that. They couldn't see, folks, what we get to see. We are privileged because we have access that they never had access to. And so we get to rejoice and we get to worship God. We get to intentionalize our affections in Christmas towards what Jesus has done because of our vantage point, folks. We've been given a privileged position because of our vantage point. Now, One of the dangers of this privileged position is that we will often read Scripture, we read the Bible according to what we know now, 
Are you with me? We read the Bible, we open it up, and we read it according to what we know now, but we don't understand that the people did not know what we know when they were living it then. Are you with me? This is, this, I want you to stay with me. This is important. So when we come to a familiar passage in Scripture that we've read particularly many times, we tend to kind of skip over these big, oh, wow, how majestic, how big, how wide is our God moments because they don't feel big to us anymore because we just read them as we flip through the pages. And if we don't do that, then we also fall into the trap of making all kinds of assumptions on the text that's just wrong. Therefore, we miss out on the richness and the massiveness and the majesty of what God is doing. And I really don't want us to do that today, folks. So with that being said, we're going to look again at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read again faithfully through verses 8 through 14. But this time, if we can, I want us to read slowly and faithfully and carefully so that we might grow today and leverage our privileged position that we've been given because it can lead to an amazing breakthrough. And that that's worth our time today, folks. That's worth our affection. So let's reread the Gospel of Luke now. Here we go. And in that same region, wow, that's going to be so important. There were shepherds. Who are these shepherds? Out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. They're just doing what they always do, folks. This wasn't anything special to them. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Are you kidding me? And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great Fear. Why were they filled with fear, Pastor Brandon? Come on. Did you read what we just what it's what the text said? Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Wow, that's powerful for all the people. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. A baby? Are you kidding me? Yeah, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, in that moment, there was an angel of, uh, excuse me, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Multitude translation means thousands, okay? Thousands of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Wow, that is, that's massive. Okay, so picture this. You have an explosion in the darkness. Are you with me? In the night sky, outside, right outside of the city. That's why it says in verse 8, and in that same region, right outside of Bethlehem, there's an explosion in the darkness of the sky. And it sounds like, imagine a 15-car crash. Bang! And the, and the sky rips open, and thousands of angelic beings begin praising and rejoicing. Are you kidding me? How amazing would that moment have been? to see thousands of angels in the sky on a normal night praising and saying glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest. Today, the Savior is among you. Lean in. <laughs> because you and I are in 2020, and many of us have been in church our entire lives, we've been led to believe that just because the prophets said that Jesus was going to come one day, that the Messiah was going to come one day, that they knew it was going to be then that they had this great expectation that it was going to be then. 
Folks, that's not true. Pay attention. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in the Bible that communicates that the prophets and the people of that time had any indication or any knowledge at all that would have led them to believe that Jesus was coming at that time. They didn't see this coming, folks. Listen, there was an explosion of light into a very seriously vast amount of darkness, both literally and figuratively. It was a dark night that night, folks, when the light cracked into the, into the darkness. And folks, this was a dark time historically when Jesus came. Like this was during the intertestamental period of time, which basically means the 400 years between what the Old Testament talks about and what the New Testament talks about, folks. These were the silent years and nothing at all indicates that the people who had any indication that Jesus was coming at that time. And that reality means everything for today's sermon, folks. Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't working, that he wasn't active during those 400 years, but it does mean that there was no official prophet during this time at all that was saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord about anything. 400 years of silence, folks. 400 years. Like, nobody on that cold night was sitting around saying, oh, I think the Messiah is coming today. I think the Messiah is going to be here today. Nobody was, nobody was doing that. Nobody had a clue. This was unexpected. So if you're sitting here right now, you're like, well, I don't know about that. Okay, well, what, let's do it this way. The last time I checked, the New Testament is permeating with text upon text, scripture upon scripture that says and proclaims about Jesus' second coming, right? And Judgment Day. The whole New Testament is permeating with scripture that talks about that. So quick question. Anybody expecting Jesus to come today? You are? Are you? Is your family? Like if Jesus came in about five minutes right in the middle of the sermon, would you be ready? Would you be expecting that? Like, none of us are expecting Jesus to come right now, right? If Jesus came right now, it would be truly unexpected. Folks, we have been given so much more access than them with the Bible and the things that we know, and we don't even live that expectantly. Consider how unexpected, how scary, how exciting, how overwhelming this moment must have been for them. Listen, we have so much more information than they did. Imagine that moment. So when the New Testament sky blows up and, and light pierces into the normal darkness of the night, it was at an unexpected time, folks. When this happened, it was an unexpected time. They were not expecting it. I guarantee you, the shepherds were not expecting out of the middle of nowhere for the sky to explode and crack like a rocket ship, lighting up with what Scripture says, thousands of heavenly hosts proclaiming about the Messiah coming today. Oh, my goodness. So not only do we get to see God's economy of timing at work here, we also get to see a little bit of God's theology of breakthrough occurring in Scripture, folks. So a beginning belief that I want to invite you into today is that God shows up at unexpected times and that those unexpected times are often for his children's breakthrough. And folks, we are his children. God shows up at on. Un- 
expect at times. And that's a really good thing. You see, I got saved when I was about 12 or 13-ish years old, and I gave my life to Christ. I made my decision. And so I grew 14, 15, 16, 17-ish years old, and I began to have different struggles, and I began to struggle with different types of addictions. And this led me on a pattern in a life where I started spending time in deep shame. Like, don't get me wrong, I loved Jesus and I tried to follow him to the best that I knew how, but because I had these different struggles inwardly, I often struggled with shame secretly. So as I entered deeper into my high school years, this became a, t a, a, a season for me where I became uh, living a life that was sort of duplicitous. Like I learned that there was a time to put on Brandon and go to church and do all the right things, but there was also a time where I put on the secret Brandon, and that's where my life, folks, was in utter turmoil. And as I fell into deeper shame and into deeper regret, as I struggled with things inwardly, I, I kind of just began to live in a pattern where I just kind of ran away from the Lord all the time in my heart as I proclaimed him so confidently out loud and publicly. But inside and deep within, I really didn't know that I was far from the Lord. And so I'd go to some youth event or some youth camp where there'd be this really special sermon and I'd come to the altar and I'd say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. And I'd mean it. And I'd stop it for like five to six weeks, sometimes six months. I'm a, I'm a very disciplined guy and I'd control it. Whatever the sin is, I'd control it until I couldn't anymore. And that would follow me, folks, that type of pattern of going to church and saying, I'm so sorry, and then trying for five weeks and then failing, and then I'm so sorry. This pattern followed me all the way to college. And unfortunately, it followed me as a young married man. And even some of this followed me even as a aspiring youth pastor. So eventually at the age of 26, most of you know I got injured. And I had a chiropractic accident. And I went through what I call the university of suffering. And I was down, folks. And I was out. And I was depressed. I was broken. I had lost everything. We lost our home. Our, we lost our cars. We lost, I lost my independence. I lost my career. And I was depressed. I was down. I was out. And I was questioning all sorts of things. And so the church was gracious. They kept me on staff even though I couldn't work. And I would show up sometimes at one or three o'clock in the morning to the church where nobody could see me because I was just so sad. And I would sit there and I would just cry night after night. I'd just weep my eyes. I'd say, God, why? Why are you not showing up for me? Why is my body not healing? Why am I not able to do the things that I want to do for your kingdom? And I'd do this literally three to four times a week showing up at the church, opening it up at two in the morning and crying in the pews and then crying on the stage and then crying in the youth room. It was a dark time. And then one night, accidentally, or should I say, unexpectedly, I came across a video on YouTube. And on this video, there's this, this kind of tall guy. He's about my height, actually, about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, He's real scrawny. His head was shaved. And he had this big scar on his head like he just had surgery. He looked like he was, honestly, battling cancer. And I was just looking at him. I was like, what is this going to be about? But for whatever reason, at this unexpected time, this video popped up. And so I began to watch it. And this guy, like I said, he looked nothing like the preachers from where I come from in Stockton, California. And so this weak-looking man, he comes up to the podium and he puts his hands, and he's, you could tell he's a little bit weak, and he puts his hands on the podium. And let me tell you, to this day, he preached a sermon that invigorated my soul like no other sermon ever has my entire 
life. This Texas pastor was as fiery as I've ever seen up to that point in my life, folks. He was practically yelling at the screen, but he was filled with this perfect balance of brotherly affection like I'd never heard before. I mean, I left that sermon in my heart so filled up, so convicted, so humble, so filled with hope and godly conviction. You see, the Spirit of the living God put a knife, a fat knife, in the majority of my duplicity that night, and it was unexpected, folks. I had no idea that God was coming for me on that night. I promise you, I didn't see it coming. Folks, I was showing up to do the same crying in the same morning that I did three to four times a week, every week for a year and a half. My wife would say, babe, please don't go. I get worried about you at night. I'll say, I have to go. And I'd go and I'd weep. I'd do this three to four times a week for a year. This was a normal rhythm. It wasn't special. It's what I did every single week. I don't think you understand. I have been doing this for a year and a half, folks. This is not a fable, a year and a half. But the Spirit of God showed up for me at an unexpected time, and it changed the course of my life forever, forever. And our God, he's still doing this today, you know, breakthroughs unexpected deliveries, a breakthrough for his people. Now, I want to make sure that we're, we're tracking together well this morning because some of the most significant change in your life is going to occur over decades upon decades slowly without you feeling or knowing it's happening. Like, what that means is that there's going to be full seasons of your life where you may be like, man, I don't really feel like I'm growing or I don't really feel like I, I just feel like I'm stuck. I really don't feel like I'm growing in my affections for Jesus or my relationship with God. But then all of a sudden, when you look back 10 years ago behind you, you're able to look and say, oh my gosh, God's been working the whole time. I've grown so much. Thought experiment. Where were you at two years ago? Do you see how God has been moving? You see, but in the right now moments of our lives, it kind of feels like we're in a fight, doesn't it? Like it can feel very discouraging, like we're not growing. Does anybody else know what I'm saying? Like, can I get a witness? I know I struggle with that. Like I just don't always feel day to day that I'm growing. But I can tell you as a 34-year-old that some of the more significant transformative acts of God in my life I honestly didn't feel a thing happening day to day in the weeks, in the moments that occurred. Just a whole lot of trying to do the best I can. Just a whole lot of trying to walk as an ordinary Christian. Just a whole lot of days of trying to let people in my life and learn to put my guard down. You know, just day to day, ordinary life, normal days. Slowly learn to confess. Slowly learn to repent and to do the things that God says in Scripture oftentimes sloppily applying it. But here's the thing. God was doing more than I knew he was doing all those days that I perceived were normal. I gave my life to the Lord at 12, and yes, I struggled with shame, and yes, I struggled with my different addictions, but those normal days, God was crafting. God was molding, and God was shaping, and then 
after all these normal days, right in the midst of the normalcy of my life at an unexpected time, major breakthrough occurred in an instant. Bang. Now, let me be clear. It's not that all my duplicity fell off that day, because I can assure you that it didn't. But what did occur is that my ferocious appetite, you with me, for duplicity and sin was put to death with a fat night right in the middle of all my crying and snots and tears. I said, I'm done, God. And I had a breakthrough. And then I had this new sense of hunger that I wanted to lean in to Jesus, folks. I wanted to lean in. And all of a sudden, I began switching my focuses off my suffering and off my pain and off my sin and off my shame to studying like crazy the Word of God. And I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm blogging and I'm blogging and I'm dreaming and I'm dreaming. And it's all centered on making much of Jesus. Because I had an, a breakthrough at an unexpected time. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I wasn't interested anymore in just watching NBA highlights and, and movies and movies and Netflix and Netflix. Instead, I was filled with a deep, genuine, robust desire to proclaim Jesus to anyone who would listen to me. <laughs> unexpected breakthrough, folks. God, in his compassion over me, said, Brandon enough. And he met me there. He walked with me all those normal days that I couldn't see him. And then he met me in a breakthrough. So here's your first positional takeaway. We as the people of God need to be radically sensitive to the fact that God often provides unexpected breakthroughs at unexpected times, folks, within our lives. We are to be faithful day by day with what we can see and control in the normal days of our life, yet joyfully available for God to do major, major, explosive work. Pay attention. We never know when God is going to show up. We just don't. That's what makes this whole sanctification process really, really cool and awesome and really, really frustrating, right? You just never know when God's going to show up. It's not just at unexpected times that God shows up, but it's also at unexpected places. You see, once again, you and I, because we're in 2020, we're always like, oh, Bethlehem, of course. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, of course Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But let me tell you the truth. The whole world today, we look at Bethlehem and we just take for granted that Jesus was born there. That's weird that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you think about it with me deeply as a biblical thinker, like wouldn't you think someone of Jesus' stature proclaimed for hundreds and hundreds of years to be the savior for this nation of Israel? This was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Don't you think that they were expecting him to be born in some magical place with the rainbow out and the birds would be chirping? You don't think they were expecting that? But he was born in Bethlehem. Folks, Bethlehem was utterly insignificant. Folks on that word. It was insignificant in every way at that time. And neither the Bible nor the intertestamental period of that time, the Jews didn't communicate at all that they were expecting their Savior to be born at a place like Bethlehem. 
They didn't even understand, folks, and even know what Bethlehem was. Did you know that? They didn't even know what Bethlehem was until, <laughs> until Christ did the work of illumination post his ascension. When he rose from the dead and he spent that time, he went back and he taught them. He says, hey, this is what I was doing. This was the point of everything. It wasn't until that moment that they even knew where Bethlehem was. Did you know that? The scriptures needed to be illuminated for them by the Holy Spirit coming for them to even know where Bethlehem was on the map. Then everybody was like, oh, there's Bethlehem. There it is on the map. Okay, now we know. Hey, keep tracking with me. Bethlehem was barely a village, folks, when Jesus was born. It was off of a first century highway between Jerusalem and Hebron on the south. The best way I can try to explain to you, because this is important, about what Bethlehem was is to talk about a town currently called Dayville, Oregon. Yes, that's right. We're going to put Dayville, Oregon on the map right now. You ready? Okay, here we go. So does anybody know Dayville? Dayville, Oregon? Does anybody know where Dayville is? Chances are that even if you lived in Oregon your whole life, you may have never heard of Dayville, and you may not know where it's at. Okay, so let, 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 me, let me explain it to you. Dayville is a really, really small town just off of Highway 26, northeast of the, Ocho, um, the Ochoco National Forest. Anybody know where that's at? You may have heard of that forest. It's one of the smallest cities in Oregon, boasting up to 150 residents only. That's Dayville, folks, as of this year. To give you a little bit more context and perspective, Dayville, Dayville, just a few years ago, became the only city in the last 15 years to graduate only one high school senior. One. This is Dayville, 2020, right? And I want you to know that Bethlehem was like Dayville in the biblical times. No one says, anybody in your family saying, I'm going to Dayville, I'm going to Dayville, Oregon today. Nobody, nobody says that, right? Like literally you only stop in Dayville, Oregon to get some gas and to keep going on to wherever you're trying to get to in Oregon or maybe to Washington, right? Chances are if you haven't stopped for gas in Dayville, you've never been there and you've never heard about it before. Okay, so keep tracking. So that's Bethlehem in the first century, right? Although it has a, a pretty rich history, you got Boaz, you got some stuff going on with David. In the first century, it's off of a highway, it's a small village, and nobody knew about it. It is completely and utterly insignificant location-wise. It has no real power, it has no real money to the kingdoms of that time. It was Dayville. And let me tell you, Dayville does not move the Oregon economics either, does it? We don't, we don't really care about Dayville. So God shows up in an unexpected place, and it's Bethlehem. Nobody knew it was going to be Bethlehem. Are you seeing God's theology of breakthrough? <laughs> so you have a kingdom of God breakthrough happening. There's light breaking into the darkness. There's light shining into a seriously vast amount of darkness. This is the beginning of the devil, the devil, I'm sorry, being taken out for good. He's about to lose all his power. Salvation is entering into the world at an unexpected time, folks. And it's at an unexpected place. This is biblical breakthrough, folks, at work. This is breakthrough at work. Breakthroughs often show up in unexpected places. And oftentimes, breakup shows up in these unexpected places at the point of our resistance in our spirit to Jesus being king over our lives. 
Like there was this married guy from a church that I was a part of before who had been struggling with pornography for over three decades, folks. He was a 50-year-old man and he had been struggling with pornography and that had led him into deeper sexual sin. And so this had been a long-standing problem. And this was a business guy, so he often traveled alone. And one of his patterns is he would often rent a hotel and then he would rent and just 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 go crazy and bonkers with pornography all night long. He had another credit card, this whole thing going on. It was a it was a total mess. And so this is what he had been doing for 20 years. He would travel on business trips, he would order a whole bunch of pornography, and he would watch it. This was a married man with four children doing this pattern for over 20 years with a struggle with pornography for three decades. Well, on one night, it was just a normal day, a normal day in the same hotel that he goes to all the time, he got a phone call. And on that phone call, it was his 16-year-old son. His son never calls him when, it's on, when his dad's on a business tip because you're not supposed to. His dad's working. It's kind of the family kind of culture. And so the dad, a little bit concerned, he answers the phone. He says, hey, son, are, is everything okay? And his son's weeping, and he's weeping, and he's weeping. And the dad, he sits up out of the bed, uh, and he puts the remote down. And, and, and this is the true story. He said he was about to watch pornography when his son called. So he, he, he puts the remote down, and he's like, so what happened? And he's automatically thinking. His heart's pumping like something happened to his wife or something's happening. And he says, dad, I, I I don't know how to tell you this, but I have to tell you now before I lose my courage. And, and the dad's like, okay, what, what's wrong? And his son goes to confess that he's been struggling himself with pornography, folks, for about a year now. And that he's been really, really having a hard time and he didn't know who to talk to, but he looks up to his dad because see, his dad was a deacon in the church at this church that I was at. And so the dad, he sits up and he starts encouraging, exhorting his son and proclaiming the richness, the richness of Christ and the promises of Christ and all these different things. And, and his son stops crying and then the dad prays for his son. And his son says, thank you, dad. Uh, thank you so much. I'm feeling so much better. I can't wait for you to come home, dad. I hope that I can get this under control. I'm sorry if I disappointed you. And the dad said, you're going to make it, son. You're going to be okay. And the son hanged up. And when the song hanged up, the dad sat on the bed in the normalness of a, a, another day, like every other time, in, the, uh, in another hotel, like he always has, at an unexpected moment. And he threw the remote down, and he said, what am I doing, God? And he began to cry and proclaim and say, I'm done, I'm finished. And God met him there at an unexpected time, folks. He was just doing what he always did. And he met him at an unexpected place because he had no idea that God was going to meet him through his son moments before engaging with the same sin that he always did. And I, would, I just want to keep exhorting to you today that whatever you're most ashamed of in your life, whatever you're struggling with the most, wherever your anxiety is most rampant, that's where God wants to get to work for your breakthrough. That's where the breakthrough occurs, not by burying it within your soul. Are you with me? Where you're most ashamed, that's the spot that God wants. Where you're most afraid, that's what he wants. That's where the work begins, folks. Not by pushing it down, not by stuffing it deeper, not by keeping it quiet, that's where we need to ask the Spirit of God and we need to say, come on, I need a breakthrough, Jesus.
Like, come on, anybody else besides me going, hey, I, I need a breakthrough in my life. Like maybe you don't because you're so awesome, but I know I do, folks. To this day, I'm still asking God for breakthroughs in my life. Like, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to live in the tension that God is faithful and that he's not on trial, but that me as an eager child would come to my dad daily and say, God, I'm ready for my next breakthrough, Jesus. And that leads me to our second privileged positional takeaway. We, as the people of God, need to be radically sensitive to the fact that God often provides unexpected breakthroughs at unexpected places within our lives. Often in places that may seem insignificant or unimportant is where God does his best work. While he is capable and known for meeting us in churches, Bible studies, and prayer groups, it is often in unexpected places where true breakthrough and transformation occur. Furthermore, he often shows up in places where we have resisted his way with the hope of freeing us from our bondage to sin. Wow. You see, the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ and the power of the kingdom shows up in unexpected places like Bethlehem at unexpected times. And on top of that, for unexpected people. Like, just consider the shepherds in this story, this true story, at Bethlehem. I mean, my, my goodness, do you know about the shepherds? Like, so you have God getting ready to throw the biggest party ever for the entrance in for his son, the one they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This is his promise being fulfilled. This is a big moment. And so God's sitting there and he's like, hmm, who do I want to invite to be a part of this big moment? Oh, I got it. The shepherds. That's where God shoots his first shot. Okay. Uh, but God, weren't the shepherds, weren't they thieves? Oh, Pastor Brandon, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, so were the shepherds thieves? Yep. Um, aren't they kind of filthy men at that time? 100%. Weren't they drunkards? 100%. These were drunk men. Listen, they were a group of men who lived out on the frontier. Do you know what's out on the frontier at this time, biblically? Promiscuity, prostitutes, drinking, magic, trading, all these different things. So you have a group of men who spend all their time outside of the normal society, out on the frontiers of the lands. And let me tell you, they were not a people group that were filled with purity and righteousness. These shepherds were outcasts, folks. They were considered thieves, and they were not even welcomed in normal society. So they tended to stay out for extended periods of time on these kind of highways, and they would arrive at little dinky towns like Bethlehem or Dayville to get some resources. Okay, get ready for this, because, because, because this is good. In God's story... In God's value system, who do you think needs to hear first that this good news of great joy of Jesus' arrival is for all people that we just read in the text? Kings and Caesars need to hear it first? Wealthy people and famous or thieves and outcasts and prostitutes and sick people and those who were poor? Like, if Jesus really came for all people, where do you start to make that so radically plain 
clear and known. You start with people like the shepherds, folks. Listen, the good news of Jesus coming to save us for all people, not just the put-together ones. Are you with me? Jesus came for the not put-together ones. It's not just for the strong. That's why, personally, I'm not a big fan of Christmas cards, particularly from Christian families that boast these pictures of false strength. Like, how happy does everyone look in these Christmas cards when the reality is that these pictures don't communicate the true representation often of what was happening at the same moment the picture was taken? Keep keep tracking with me. Oftentimes, at the same time that that picture was snapped, do you know what was happening? The husband and wife, they were arguing. The little cute little dog was wilding out and chewing everything in sight, and they're trying to get the dog to sit down. The, the, the children are, are frustrated because their parents keep telling them to put their cell phone in their pocket, and they want to finish texting who they're texting. And then they all get, for one second, the dog to calm down, the husband and wife to get along, the children put their things away, and they snap the picture, and for one second they look like a picture-perfect family. And then as soon as the picture is over, they go back to all their stress and all their drama. And this is what we take Christmas pictures on and this false presentation that were put together. But, but here's what that does, folks. It puts pressure on others to work towards something that's not true, namely being put together all the time and being perfect. Perfect, excuse me. And it makes you say things like this. Oh, gosh, I wish that my family was like this family on, the, on, the, on this Christmas card. I wish that we were this happy. But the reality is that's just not the reality of what's going on. But this is what's even more true for us. And it's that the good news of Jesus' arrival is for all people. It's for the weak, and it's for the broken, it's for the frail, it's for the exhausted, it's for the burdened, it's for the, the Christian family who is trying to take a picture, but the dog doesn't get along, the children are whining, the mom is overwhelmed, the dad is stressed out. You don't have to have a Hallmark card ready to meet Jesus, folks, on Christmas. Breakthrough is for the un put together once breakthrough it's for us and that's what christmas is really all about folks and that's what the baby jesus being born is all about it's about jesus coming to bring breakthrough radically to those who need it most and i don't know about you but i'm one of those unexpected people and i'm saying jesus i need another breakthrough in my life like, I would love for us to eventually get to the place where we understand that the people of God are messy. Gosh, folks, we're messy. We're being sanctified mostly over a long period of time, which means at any given moment, the people of God are messier than we desire ourselves to be. Like, I'm messier than I want to be. You're messier than you want to be. Like, I'd love to be further along than I am, but I must find uh, my security in God's process of growing me into the fulfillment and the fullness of Christ. It just often moves more slowly than I would like for it to go. Can I get a witness about that? Anybody else? I know for me, I wish it would go faster. God, just get the sin out of me. I wish it would move faster. Like, my guess is that most of us maybe are decent at accepting grace from Jesus, and most of us are probably fairly good at demanding that other people give grace um, when you see someone struggling. 
But isn't it true that most of us struggle giving grace to ourselves? Isn't that true? We're not very kind and gracious to ourselves, right? Most of us really struggle with that. We, we say things like, we should be more. We should be able to do more. We should be further along. We shouldn't have to be so much, so struggling with this. And why am I so weak? Why can't I grow? Why can't I stop doing this? Why am I not better? But says who? Who said you're supposed to have all these things together? And how's that mindset working for you, family and friends? You see, that mindset only leads to self-condemnation every single time. Listen, Satan would love to fight you in the dark. But let me tell you, in the dark, he's going to kick the crap out of you because that's his kingdom. But if you learn how to pull his sorry existence carcass self into the light, if you pull him into the light, that's where you can fight him well in Jesus. And let me tell you, every lie and every source of condemnation that he is trying to proclaim and reign over your life will fall away in Jesus. Like, what if we thought, like, what if the thought of, I should be better, I should be further along, I should be uh, uh, wiser, I should be more righteous, was replaced with what's true in the Word of God, namely, that Jesus is better, Jesus is righteous, Jesus is perfect, He's our hope. Like, folks, our righteousness is not found in ourselves, it's found in Christ. We're not perfect, He's perfect, and we find our perfection in Him. We're free from that pursuit. We're free from that chase. Like, what if we could punch back with that biblical truth, folks? What would it be like? Like, what if we took it a step further, and what if we had a renewed mindset of how we loved people that seemed beyond the cross? Like, listen, if there's one thing that the Bible and Christian history teaches us is that God's economy, God's values, God's way of thinking looks for places where you and I are not expecting it. So if we're the people of God and we're leading a church and we want this to be a home for the sick, a hospital for the broken, we have to step and lean into God's economy of thinking, which means that he shows up for people who are not expecting it at unexpected times, at unexpected places with people that are not expecting it. And that leads to our last and third privileged positional takeaway. We as the people of God need to be radically sensitive to the fact that God often provides unexpected breakthroughs for unexpected people. And that's us, folks. He makes himself known amongst thieves and filthy and immoral people to show that he came to save all people. This does not mean we must have the most grotesque story and testimony to experience the presence of God, presence of God, but rather it's indicative of the reality that even our best day, we are already those sinful people. Therefore, God uses us, an unexpected Gentile, a sin-filled people, to demonstrate his great love and grace across the universe. Okay, so I want to do something different today, and it's going to be okay. We're all going to be fine, and it's going to be safe. You ready? Here's what I want to do. I want us to actually bow our heads 
and I want us to actually close our eyes and I don't want us to open them. And I want us to do this right now with all of our hearts and our minds. Okay, so let's do that. And here's a quick statement to anyone who's looking at the screen right now saying, I don't want to do it. Fine. If you want to look at me awkwardly, go ahead. But I want to invite you to do this even right now in our virtual church experience. So let's do that now faithfully, people of God. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Okay, with eyes that are closed and heads that are bowed, I'm going to ask you a few things. And I want to give you space right now to consider the words as you think privately in your own life right now. Okay, here we go. Eyes are closed, heads are bowed. How many of you would say, Pastor Brandon, although I know that the bondage of sin and death has been broken in me and that I'm a Christian and that Jesus paid the price, and though I'm in the Bible as best as I know how with all my insufficiencies and distractions and the times that take me away from it, and though I do try to pray the best I know how, despite oftentimes I find prayer boring and it's hard to focus, and though I do really try to show up to church and be a part of community in the best ways that I know how, acknowledging that I have different relational limitations and wounds that make it difficult. Pastor Brandon, if I'm really being honest, as I'm working hard to trust that God is working things slowly in my life at a perfect pace according to him, I just really am desperate for the Spirit of God to give me a breakthrough in some areas of my life. There's some areas where I'm struggling with fear. There's some areas where I'm struggling with my sin. There's some areas where I'm struggling with trauma from my past. And I just so would desire a breakthrough. Okay, keeping your heads bowed and keeping your eyes closed. If that's you, would you raise your hand, keeping your eyes closed right now, and just say in your heart, I need a breakthrough in my life, Jesus. Take a moment to say that to yourself. Okay, now keeping your hand up and your eyes closed, here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your eyes and I want you to look around right now. Do you see what I see? You're seeing Everybody in your household with their hands raised that chose to participate, right? Hey, gosh, folks, it's all of us, folks. We're all looking for healing. We're all looking for some breakthrough in our life. Like, hey, look at me. What if that's what it means to be a Christian? What if what it means to be a Christian is to trust the long game process of what God is doing while being radically free to be like, God, it's hard and I need a breakthrough. What if that's what it means to be a Christian? Like, what if what it means to be a Christian is that it's okay to celebrate to, and want more from Jesus, to not be satisfied with where you're at? What if it's okay to be a Christian that says, man, I'm thankful, God, for everything you've done, but I know you're not done, and I want to break through Jesus? Would that help you to rest a little bit more, celebrate a little bit more? Like, what if instead of looking around all the time and saying, geez, I'm such a loser compared to that guy. He's so faithful. He's so legit. He's so, he worships so good. He doesn't have the sin in my life. Like, what if you're both losers, but in Christ, you get to be redeemed? Folks, the, the man that you aspire to be like is a loser because he's also filled with sin. 
It's Christ that's the hero. We're all the zero. Or how about this? Oh, I'm such a terrible mom. I'm not as good as this mom. I wish I was a better mom and I could do all the things that this mom does with her kids. Like, what if you're both not good moms, but in Christ, you're free to be great moms? Like, what if that's what it's like to have the God's economy of thinking permeate our lives where we stop putting so much pressure on ourselves? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's about trusting the process of what God says, getting in the Bible the best we can, and just saying, God, I'm always available and ready for you to break through in my life. Like, you know, some of us can dive in the Bible and we can look at the Hebrew and the Greek. Did you know that God doesn't love the person that can look at the Hebrew and the Greek any more than he loves the new believer? Hey, did you know that God does not love the person that reads the Greek and the Hebrew and the Quinonia Bible and the, and the ESV any more than the person that uses the Message Bible because they enjoy the paraphrase? Did you know that God doesn't love either one any more or any less? It's about trusting the process, folks, no matter where you're at trusting the normal days and recognizing that unexpected breakthrough can happen at any moment and that God can show up at an unexpected time, at an unexpected place for you, the unexpected person that feels that you're too far from God or that God has forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about you, brother and sister. So here's what we're going to do today as we land the plane. I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God would do that for each person today. Namely, provide a breakthrough. Whatever it is, whatever you need right now, get in your mind, whether it's a breakthrough from sin, a breakthrough relationally, a breakthrough in your marriage, a breakthrough with your children, a breakthrough with your son, a breakthrough with your daughter, a breakthrough with your finances, whatever it is, a breakthrough from your past with some tragedy, some loss. I'm going to pray for a breakthrough, folks. And, and maybe, maybe he's going to grant that breakthrough right now. And maybe he's not. But this is what I do know. Let me tell you what I know. Right now, this is an unexpected time. Because you probably didn't come to today's service thinking that our Christmas sermon was going to be about what we talked about today. Isn't that true? This is an unexpected time. And let, let me tell you what else I know. This is an unexpected place. This is a virtual church. You're sitting at your couch, and you're probably not prepared for an unexpected breakthrough in this place on your couch, in your car, in your shower right now, are you? And let me tell you, you are most definitely an unexpected person. Because you're not the best, you're not the holiest, you're not the most obedient, you're not the wisest biblical thinker, you're not the most faithful, you're just messy, folks. You're messy and I'm messy, and that makes us an unexpected people. And so believe it or not, God shows up in his economy of thinking, in his value system, he hunts for these moments. What do we learn in the Ephesians? God is looking to and fro, high and low, to give strong support to us. This is an unexpected time for a breakthrough. So let's pray right now for God to do that. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. They have confessed that they love you as best as they know how from where they're at in this season, God. Holy Spirit, invigorate their souls to know that they're not on trial. Father, they're in their Bibles as best as they know how in this season. They're praying the best they know how in this stage of their relationship with you. And I believe that you are rejoicing in that, God. 
because your word and your spirit is not a burden, God. So I pray that you help them to believe that too. Right now, in Jesus' name, I don't know what's going on in the minds of these listeners, God, but I ask, Spirit of the living God, that you pour yourself out into the hearts and the minds and the souls of these men and these women and these children. You break loose whatever needs to be breaking loose, God. Break through now, Jesus, in Jesus' name. Break through, Lord, their fear. Break through in their anxiety. Break through in their sin and carnality. A breakthrough, whatever it takes, God. We're going to trust the process, Lord. And, and if we don't get free from whatever this is, Lord, that we're struggling with, and if we have to walk in this thing, Lord, for another 20 years, God, we proclaim that you are good, you are faithful, you are kind, you are beautiful, you are not on trial. But, Lord, we are asking as needy children, Lord, we are in need of your oxygen. You provide the breath that fills our lungs, God. You are what satisfies our souls. And we're coming as needy children saying, break through, break loose, break chains, and do it for us because you are a good, good, good father, Lord. So I proclaim as the vessel today, Lord, that, Lord, this is an unexpected time. This is an unexpected place, and we are messy, unexpected people. May you break us free from what you need to. May you break us loose from whatever it is, Lord. Reconcile mother and, and son and father and daughter. Reconcile relationships reconcile build grow be big for us today it's in your beautiful name we pray amen merry christmas rcc hi guys it's pastor brandon and i really do hope that today's sermon titled christ in bethlehem and our privileged position for unexpected breakthrough was encouraging and ultimately challenging that it's really spurred you on and set you up to Keep Christ more centered in your Christmas experience this holiday season. Now, let's just be honest. It's going to be absolute bonkers and chaos out there for the next two weeks as we prepare for Christmas. There's going to be deals upon deals, propaganda upon propaganda, and dinners to be made, presents to get wrapped. I know how much is going on right now. And so my hope is, and my prayer will be that we just really work hard to not be so of the world world, even though we live in the world. And I also want to encourage you to be expecting God to show up for you with breakthrough in your life. Because let me tell you, for us as the people of God, breakthrough is not just possible, folks. It's probable. You with me? Expect God to show up for you at unexpected times, at unexpected places, because he is a good father to do that for you this season. So with no further ado, I pray that this sermon that you've listened to beautifully haunts you for the next two weeks as we take steps to being more like Jesus day by day. Now, besides that, I have one more pastoral exhortation. Are you ready? Give yourself permission to not be perfect. Are you with me? Like, we are a messy people, day by day, learning to be more like Jesus. So give yourself a pat on the back. Recognize the love that's been lavished on you by the God of the universe. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your children. And please make time to enjoy Jesus. He's been good to you and me. Merry Christmas. Talk to you later.